All right, we're in the book of Romans. We're in lesson eight today, an introduction to justification. We're looking at Romans chapter three, verses 21 to 31. And what a delightful passage. You know, when I come to this passage, I think of the Philippian jailer and how he was there in the jail. He heard Paul and Silas singing. He heard them speaking. And when the earthquake came and he was afraid of his own life, that the prisoners had escaped, of course, Paul was still there. And so the Philippian jailer came and asked that age-old question, what must I do to be saved? Uh, That question is the question of the heart. And it kind of broadens into three larger questions. Questions that every unsaved person and on a regular basis, every Christian is making sure about. Number one, how can I be sure that I'm forgiven? How can I be sure that I'm forgiven? Secondly, how can I be free of sin and Satan? I'm trapped. When the conviction of the work of the Spirit begins in the life of an unbeliever, and they begin to read God's Word, they come under the Gospel preaching, and they begin to reflect on these things, those questions start to bear on their minds. How could I be forgiven? Maybe good people can, but how could I be forgiven? How could I ever be free of this? And then how could this fear that I have with God be removed? I am afraid of God. And when I meet him in his presence, I know that I am undone. When the conviction of the spirit begins, you know that those start to bear on the weight of the conscience. How could I ever be forgiven? How can I be free from this? I can't stop sinning. I just keep being this person. And how could I ever get out of this fear of, this, of God? How could I ever appease God? I know he's angry with me. What do I have to do? And all world religions act to answer those three questions. Uh, Maybe I'm forgiven if I do this great exploit. Maybe I could appease God if I sacrificed. Or maybe I could get out of this freedom if I just stop doing these things. I go on a mountain, I become a Buddhist monk. Right? And I put away those desires and, and I get free from this person within. And nothing satisfies, does it? Every world religion tries to address those three issues. And in God's beautiful kindness, uh, Romans chapter 3, 21 to 31 addresses that. It addresses all three of those questions. You know, also when I think of this passage, I'm led to think of one of my favorite sermons I ever heard. And it's called uh, The Sinner's Day by Lewis Paul Lehman. And in that sermon, he acts out, if you will, in a first-person way, the drama of what it would be like to go into the courtroom of God that we've just been in, in Romans chapter 1 to 3, that Paul has brought us into, and namely that we're all guilty before God and that we're without excuse. And he acts out in this sermon, for our benefit, what it would be like to be in the courtroom under God's preaching of the gospel and the, con- the conviction that comes from the Ten Commandments. And he takes us in that courtroom in the sermon for the purpose not of showing what it would be like in the courtroom of the white, great white throne judgment because there is no going back from that. But what it would be like to be in the courtroom of God in the first three chapters of Romans 
and come to the end of that conversation. And for a minute, let me just explain what he says as an introduction to what we're doing. In there, he, as the character, he is sitting there and the witnesses are the Ten Commandments. And each person who comes up, one of the commandments, explains their commandment. And then this guy has decided not to seek counsel because he's pretty sure that he hasn't done anything that bad. And so as each witness comes forward to explain their commandment, he says, no, I've never, I've never had idols. I've never done this. But in each case, it's proven that he really had broken that commandment, of course. The jury is going to be a problem also. It's the omnipotence of God. It's the omnipresence of God. It's the omniscience of God. It's the holiness of God and the wrath of God. And it's the justice of God. So you know he's going to get a fair trial. (laughs) And so what really grounds down for me is when they get to the fifth commandment. And in the fifth commandment, the witness comes up and says, what is your name? I'm the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother. And of course, he says, well, I've never... I've never dishonored my father and mother. They were the sweetest Christian couple you would ever meet. And then the judge and the prosecutor say, didn't your father say to bow your knee to God? Did you not dishonor him in that? Didn't your mother pray for you and have you not disdained her prayers? Guilty. And so in each of the commandments, he's proven guilty. And at the very end of that scenario, the judge says... Louis Paul Lehman, you've been proven guilty on all ten counts. What do you have to say for yourself? Nothing. Uh, Nothing. But then he remembered that he'd been offered counsel. And he says, is it too late to call for counsel? And so the judge says to the courtroom that's assembled, well, he's been proven guilty on all ten counts. Does anyone want to take his case? And then in the story, Mercy comes from the back and sits next to him. And he says, is there anything we can do? He says, no, you have a hopeless case. But you could call for Jesus. And that's what he does. In the, in the I call for Jesus. And then the explanation of how he gets up, the courtroom stands and then goes to its knees. And Jesus comes forward to be his defense attorney. And he calls for Jesus, and then, of course, he preaches on, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This passage, friends, we finally get to that passage as Christians where we can rejoice. The first two and a half chapters of Romans, of course, have brought us to the point that no one can be saved. Everyone's under the wrath of God. We stand before God's justice. Every one of us deserves hell, and there is no way out of it. We cannot get free of ourselves because of our nature, we are not able to be forgiven for all that we have done, and we should fear God because we are under his wrath. And I love how verse 21 starts with the word, but. Let me read now God's word for us. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation 
in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. If you grew up Roman Catholic, you circle that, you underline it, you put a yellow marker through it, you dance up and down, you run around the building, you announce to your friends that God is good and merciful. Verse 28 again. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. If you're a Christian here this morning, you're free. The court has ruled in your favor. It has found you guilty, right? That's, that's the amazing thing. It found you guilty. It found me guilty. But then the judge supplied his own son to die in your place. The judge says, you're guilty, you should die. Someone has to die here, my friend. The law of God cannot be broken. You must die. Someone must die for this crime. And then he brought his son forward and offered him in your place. God's courtroom where we are guilty. We're not exonerated. We're not pardoned. But it's because we are in him and his punishment that we are accepted before God. That's the beauty. I put here in this little block uh, some, a statement, a summary of all this by Greg Herrick, in which he says, The way in which God freely and graciously justifies any sinner, Jew or Gentile, as testified to in the law and the prophets, is not by works of law, but by faith in Christ's atoning sacrifice. A sacrifice which demonstrates God's justice in dealing with sin, and at the same time, excludes all human boasting. I didn't know I was going to be a pastor when I was a little kid. But I used to like to draw stuff. And God put them both together, and I was like, this is the best day ever. <laughs> this passage in big picture form, let me do that just for a minute before we dive back into text and begin to go through it. What this passage is big picture is this. It is telling us that God is demonstrated publicly to be righteous in the way that he has saved sinners because of the cross. And it says, God who overlooked sin in the past, we'll talk about that, has now, be, has now been demonstrated to be righteous by the redemption and propitiation and atoning work of Jesus Christ. What is that all about? This particular passage is telling us the gospel is about God. It demonstrates who God is in the gospel. And that is, God was merciful in the Old Testament dispensation, the time of the Old Testament, 
from creation and Adam's fall till the time of the cross, we're told in this passage, God has been merciful. He's overlooked the sins of the Old Testament. He has not punished people in the Old Testament as greatly as their sin would have demanded. When we think, well, what about the flood? What about God just destroyed the whole earth instead? God has shown mercy and restraint in the entire Old Testament period in light of the coming sacrifice of Christ. But God looks like he's unjust. If God is a just judge, and he's holy, and his standards are completely true, then if he does not punish sin, then he himself is actually not holy. And so what God had to do, of course, is punish sin. And this is where mercy and justice come together. In 33 AD. So this passage tells us, so that God could be just, he himself demonstrated to be righteous. He had to punish sin. And also that he could be the justifier of the ungodly. God cannot pardon people in his courtroom. That's what we get back to. He can't be like the governor who says, hey, I'm, I'm, I, I need somebody to like me, so I'm going to pardon this murderer. Well, they were guilty, and they truly did not pay the full price. But the governor pardons them not completely just, but it is merciful. But you cannot have mercy without full justice in God's perfect purpose. And so someone had to die. So back to it. This passage then tells us in big picture that God's righteousness is displayed through the cross. He is shown to be righteous. But then it also goes on to say that we can be made righteous, not made righteous, we can be declared righteous by God if we also accept the punishment that Christ does. Now, I just want to get into this kind of big picture background. What actually happened there that day? How is it that God could be just and a justified? How could the death of a person, a human being, satisfy the wrath of God? It couldn't. It had to be the death of God. I know that. <laughs> it was a rhetorical question. I'm like, what? <laughs> Dude, you spoiled it. No. No, no, no. Um, it was not simply the person of Jesus, the man, and his crucifixion. Secondly, on that, when we say it was the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus is the representative that his death was poured out for us. But it's not the physical blood that actually saves you or else you're back to Catholicism and you just rub that on your head or it gets splattered on the Roman soldiers and they're saved from it. It's not the physical blood of Jesus. It is in symbol the fact that it demonstrates his death. But how was God appeased that day? How was he propitiated? Those are words we're going to talk about. What satisfied the wrath of God for all the sinners who are going to be saved? God cannot die. God cannot die. But in God's amazing mystery, the Father punished the eternal Son of God on the cross and broke fellowship with him. So that, that's when, when he cries out, Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The eternal relationship between the Father and the Son 
completely unbroken, always perfect, is broken at the cross. God considered him sin. God considered him a sinner. It's not simply the man Jesus' punishment, right? It is that the eternal Son of God was punished as if he was an enemy of the Father. That's the mystery of the cross. How is God appeased by breaking fellowship with his own son? How is that even possible? He became an enemy of the Father for this time on the cross. And in that, God worked out the mystery of this. So the big picture again of this passage is that God is demonstrated to be righteous. That the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is sufficient to appease God, as we talked about. It is sufficient to pay for the sins of all those he would save. And it also would break us from the bondage that we have to sin Satan. And we're going to talk about that in a second. Now, I call this an introduction to justification today. Why? Uh, Because the next three chapters are about justification. And today we're really looking at the terms and the big picture. And Lord willing, we'll come back next week and talk about the ground down pieces of that. Everybody doing okay? All right. Well, let me then give the, in my own words, uh, the contextual overview of the next two chapters, three, four, and five, rather three chapters, and then we'll dive into the meaning of the terms that are in this passage. So at the bottom of page one, Romans three, this passage we're in, it's an explanation of justification by faith. Justification by faith, as promised in the Old Testament, and as fulfilled of the purpose of the law as a fulfillment. This justification of believing sinners demonstrates God's intrinsic righteousness as he justly dealt with sin through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. Believers are declared righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ. And God is declared righteous based on his just punishment of sins, which he had formerly been covered but now paid for under the old dispensation. So you see that what I've written here is better than what I said. But in picture, that's where we are. So that's chapter 3. Chapter 4, then, we'll go on next week and address this question. Well, if people are saved by faith, what's the whole point of the law? And what about, the Jewish argument would be, what about Abraham and David and those guys? I mean, they're all about law-keeping, right? Well, chapter 4 says, Justification by faith has seen the lives of Abraham and David. Abraham was justified by faith before the law was given. Ruh-roh. And David was justified by faith during the period of the law. And believers today are justified by faith after the period of the law. Before the law, during the law, after the law. Paul's argument, this has always been the way it was. Always based on the coming Savior's death or looking back. But it's always been by faith in the finished work of Christ as the ultimate payment and to trust God by faith. That's always been the way people have been saved. But what about the law? Paul will get to that in chapter 7. Now in chapter 5 then, Paul will then get back storied again. If chapter 3 tells us that we are saved by faith, and chapter 4 says it's always been this way, and this is the principle by which God, the law of faith, like is the law of gravity, the law of faith has always existed, is what Paul's saying. This principle of being saved. But in chapter 5, he gets a little deeper. Justification by faith is built on the reality of this thing called imputation of sin and the imputation of righteousness. 
Imputation requires a representative. Adam was the representative of all mankind, and his sin was imputed to us. Christ is the representative of all the elect, and his righteousness is imputed to us. All people sinned in Adam. All believers are made alive in Christ. That's the backstory. Thank God for Romans chapter 3. All right, so here are my nine points. Could have made ten, but, you know, I didn't have that much paper to do. (laughs) But here are my nine points out of this passage, okay? So what is this passage teaching us? So you see, I've just kind of given a big picture. I want to go down through the passage. Then I want to define the terms of the passage and leave us prepared for next week's conversation on justification, okay? So what nine things would I see in this passage? Number one, the law of Moses can save no one. We said last week in the silly illustration I gave the MRI, the CAT scan, etc. All it does is expose what's real. It doesn't make you healthy. Right? And the law was never meant to make you healthy. It never was meant to save you. It was only meant to expose the problems within. Paul makes it very clear. We say that no one is justified by the works of the law. And yet... Roman Catholics will continue to try to be justified by doing good works. Christian cults, Christian cults, will attempt to do good works. How many of you, again, just tell me, came out of Roman Catholicism? Okay. How many of you came out of Episcopalianism? Oh, Lutheranism. None of you were Lutherans? Oh, one legit guy. (laughs) How many of you grew up Baptist? What? Dude, I'm talking to the wrong group. (laughs) Okay, most of you grew up Baptist. How many of you were saved... As a Baptist, how many of you were saved before you were 18 years old? Okay, then the other group, if you'll raise your hand, how many of you grew up Baptist but were saved after you were 18? Close to half and half, a little more in the first. Okay. Wow, thank you. That just helps me find out who the real Christians are in the room. Growing up Baptist, and I just need to say this because this is my point. Growing up Baptist, because I can think of Lutheran, Episcopalian, Lutheran, uh, Catholics, some of us who grew up in a law system, okay, modern Lutheranism, unless you're Missouri Synod, I, I can make that framework. But let me just say as a Baptist, I went to a Baptist college, okay? All right, Carla grew up Baptist, so we're in. We're in. She was saved at four, grew up Baptist. You know, as growing up Baptist, that it's possible In fact, often it's true that it becomes quite legalistic, possibly. Or you think that you're saved through the altar call. So there's misconceptions, but they're not always the same ones as a Catholic would have. That's good. That's helpful. Second point that Paul seems to bring out in this passage is God's righteousness, namely his imputed righteousness, which we're going to define each of these terms, if you're not as familiar, rather than his intrinsic righteousness, is a gift to those who have faith in the finished work of Christ. 
again, that's the beauty. How do sinners get right with God in God's courtroom? He imputes or credits the righteousness of Christ to their account as if they had done it. Think back, we talked about swimmers a couple weeks ago. Okay, So let's imagine again, was it Steve? I think I picked Steve. Was it Elsie? No? Yes. Right, it was Elsie and Steve and I. Right, okay. <laughs> and now please come up and confess your greatest sin. Elsie's like, I'll never miss a week again. <laughs> All right. But imagine again, we're going to rebirth this because it's a little more significant here. Imagine that Steve and Elsie and I go down to the uh, harbor in Baltimore, and we're going to swim from the Baltimore Harbor to Portsmouth, England. (laughs) All right? Just a little trip. From what I could see on Google Maps and everything, it's about 3,000 miles, more or less. Okay, open ocean. Okay? Not bad. Not bad. We're also going to bring a person with us this time. We're adding a person. Her name is Sarah Thomas. Sarah Thomas is arguably the greatest swimmer on earth right now. Uh, Sarah Thomas went out to swing, uh, swim the English Channel a few years ago. And people were like, cool, she's going to swim from England to France, which she did. When she got to France, she's like, I'm not tired. She swam back to England. <laughs> when she got back to England, she said, I'm not tired. She swam back to France. Remember when swimming the English Channel was a big deal? When she got back to France, she said, not tired. She swam back to England. That is 84 miles of swimming, minimally, but she swam 130 miles because of the weather conditions in order to accomplish that. Pretty impressive. There are some other great long-distance ocean swimmers right now, Pablo Fernandez, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to just say Sarah joins us that day. It's going to be a bad day for some of us. (laughs) But in this case, there are two things that make this the story. Number one, there is no going back. There is no aid. Nobody's going to rescue you. You have to swim to England or die. It's an all-in, zero-sum game, because that's what salvation is. If you decide to swim to England on your own, to be saved by your good works, to demonstrate to God that you can swim to England and do your thing, then you're all-in, because you cannot go back. So the point is, again, as I said before, I'm probably 100 yards out, and people are looking for me. <laughs> All right, Dave's not getting off the continental shelf. He's not getting off the beach. All right, you know. So if a shark hits you on the way, do you get credit? <laughs> do you know what's really to add story to it is in God's ocean of come. You want to be righteous? Adam and Eve had a posted sign on the beach, and they were fine. They could go swimming. They weren't earning merit from their swim. But they were innocent. But there was a sign on the beach that said, hey, don't eat of this tree. And then go swimming. Don't, don't eat before you swim. <laughs> but they ignored that and they got out in the ocean. But the point is, that ocean is fraught with dangers because if you get in that and swim, and God already told you another posted sign is no one can swim here, you must take Jesus as your raft. Or he's the only swimmer I recognize in the water. Everyone else is an enemy of the crown. So even trying to swim there is against God's law. It's like the spies who went in and did not do what God said, and then he said, don't go in there again, and then they went back in. If you go back in this ocean to try to swim, God has already said you cannot swim. It's my ocean. Only my son can swim there. 
And so as we swim out there again, Elsie and Steve, as good as they are, are going to eventually <sighs> perish. <laughs> Not Elsie. <laughs> and then, of course, Sarah Thomas in her human effort of swimming will get about 130. Maybe it's her best effort of ever. She swims 200 miles. And she is 2,800 miles from shore. No one who's ever lived can swim to England. No one who ever lived can be good enough to meet God's standard because we all fall short, this passage tells us, of the glory of God. And that is obedience to his law and obedience to his nature. I just want to say this as a, as a Christian pastor to you as a friend. If you're a Christian, it's possible to begin to have moralistic feelings like this. Now that I've been made a legit swimmer, that's how we feel about it. God legitimized me on the beach. He said, go ahead out there and swim. Then we think, so now I'm going to swim to England because I can. Uh, I know it's just a story I'm making up, but no, you're not swimming to England either. Only one person ever swam to England. And it's because you're in him that it's credited as if you did swim to England. But friends, you're not getting off the beach. You're not doing anything to help your salvation. And the swimming, if you want to, once you're saved, if you're going to mix the story up, you're, even if it's to say in sanctification, you're never getting that far out in the ocean. And if we begin to think, I should have been swimming to England by now. That's Romans chapter 7. Paul says, you know, when I go swimming, I have problems. My legs cramp up. I'm not removing obedience to swimming. I'm not, that's all in chapter 6 to 8. But as a friend to say, if you are in any way trusting in or counting on the slightest stroke that you're going to make on top of what Jesus did, rest in his swimming, in your salvation. Stay on the beach of sin and say, I cannot do this. That swimmer is accepted by God. And if I place the colors of that team on me, of Jesus Christ, his obedience will be counted as if I swam the entire ocean. Friends, that is our salvation. Do not trust in yourself, your religion, or your little life rafts. They will not save you. Life rafts are bad. Those are religions. They're support mechanisms. And when you get out there, you'll find out, there's freaking whales out here. Okay. All right, back to number three. The believer is justified, that is counted as having a righteous standing before God, declared legally righteous by grace through faith, apart from law keeping. Paul will expand this concept of grace in chapters 9 to 11. But what's the point of by grace through faith? Well, again, what are we doing today? We're doing what we did when we introduced the book. General topics, big picture, and we go back to expositing each of the wonderful phrases next week. Last week, we looked at Paul's description of total inability, total depravity. None of us, our mind, will, and affections are in the bubble of bondage to our sin nature, and there's no way out of it. We are dead in our sins. When, we, when Paul says we are saved by grace through faith, he is telling you that our faith in the finished work of Christ 
is a result of something that's already occurred, and that is the grace of God. The grace of God, Paul will go on to tell us in the rest of the book, has two parts. That God is gracious, he gave his son in our place. And also that his grace, his empowerment to make us alive, as Ephesians says, that God has in his grace made you alive so that you could have faith in the finished work of Christ. It's by grace through the vehicle of faith, if that makes sense. All right, number four. Paul says, or no, Dave says that Paul says, the believer's sins are forgiven and the believer's redeemed. That is bought out of the slave market. And God is propitiated, satisfied of his holy wrath and justice by the blood of Christ. Paul uses the words propitiation and redemption in this passage about the atoning work of Christ. We're going to, re, we're going to define them more carefully here in a few minutes. But Paul uses a Greek term here for redemption, which was the Greek word often used in the Greek slave market. To purchase a slave. Now, if we leave it there, then the image would be that God has purchased us to make us slaves. Pastor MacArthur wrote a book called Slave. But God does not do that only. Jesus says, I call you my brothers, my friends. He purchased us to set us free. Again, it's the picture in the Old Testament of the slave who decides to serve their master and have the ear put on the awl and put a symbol there. My friends, we have been purchased. We were all slaves to Satan and sin, as we looked at last week. And every one of us has been set free by Christ, who's believed in him, to serve him now in freedom. Number five, God is declared to be righteous in his use of the gospel, to save sinners because he did not merely pardon, but rather satisfied his justice through the sacrifice of Christ. Number six, as we have said, faith is seen as a law, a principle of salvation. Just like the law of gravity, the law of faith is you're only saved by the law of faith. Thus we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Both Jews and Gentiles alike are saved in the same manner. Apart from the law, there is no difference. Abraham's our big picture again. Abraham, big picture for Gentiles. You're saved without the law, and that's the beauty. Number eight, salvation by grace through faith is not new, but rather the entire Old Testament explained this already. And number nine, Jews and Gentiles being saved by faith fulfills the law rather than contradicts it. We'll look more at that next week, but the point of it is this, that when we drew the Old Testament up there, it wasn't just like law and grace, but there was always grace in the law, and there's always law within grace. God has rules, but the Old Testament clearly pointed to the finished work of Christ as the only possible hope. And all of those promises of the Messiah coming and the pictures of those believing who are credited righteousness by believing the Old Testament demonstrate that's what's going to happen. All right. Any questions about what I've said so far? Um, just in definition. Yeah, the, the basis, uh, depending on what you're saying by basis. If you're saying the ground of or the law that was present, the law of imputation is what as you know, Romans chapter 5, Paul's going to go back and answer that question, which is, so why was this, why is this that God can impute to us righteousness? Oh, because he already did to Adam. And when we say, what is the basis of the law that God gives? Is it, is it necessary law or is it a voluntary law that God gives? God's nature requires necessarily that he is holy. But God didn't have to make a world, and he didn't have to create a system of imputation. It's not necessary to the person of God. 
God could have created a world in which uh, he set the world up differently. So what is the basis of imputation as a principle? It is God's voluntary will, his determination to do so, and then his description to us is that is the law. Certain laws of God come out of his nature. Certain laws of God come out of his free will. God cannot choose to sin, but God can choose to make worlds. He can make the same people. Those are all voluntary choices, not required by God's nature. He could have chosen not to create, etc. So when we ask what's the basis of imputation, it's the voluntary will of God for his own divine pleasure, Ephesians 1. Yeah, Ann? You said God broke contact with Jesus when he was on the cross. Son of God, yeah. Is that because Jesus was made sin? Yes. God cannot look at sin? That that is certainly part of it, Ann. That's right, because he's made sin. Um, He represented as if he was a sinner. Right. But he did not just represent as a sinner. But he was sin itself. All All sins of all of the elect for all time. And therefore God's punishment of him more more severe than any individual sinner would ever receive. It's the eternal wrath of God um, placed on an eternal being. And it's not a temporal thing, it's not a corporal thing, it's just a reality of the intensity of that wrath could not... You'd have to pile up zillions and billions and trillions of people and you could not even sin enough, if you will, or pay for your own sins enough to... There's no equation. And so when we talk about was Christ's death sufficient to pay for the sins of all people for all time? Certainly. It's not a sufficiency thing, it's a, it's a particular redemption thing. Why did he do it? So, Okay, a couple of clarifications. Last one, Steve, and then we'll go on. Question, when we talk about um, uh, when you say about faith, yeah. and those who look at Abraham yeah. and when he sacrificed Isaac mm-hmm. yeah. and, and, and scripture says that they receive Isaac back as a type yeah. so there's no work involved in that so how do other faiths then that, that mm-hmm. look at Abraham then where do they get works from yeah, no, that's a good point. Steve's asking the question, where do you get works from in the picture of Abraham? Like when he sacrificed his son, where do other religions, Judaism, get the, the idea? Um, they get it in the symbols. You know, Genesis 15, Abraham is saved. We're going to talk about that next week. He, he believed God. God said, count all the stars. The, this is going to be your offspring, all of that. He believed God, and it was credited, counted to him, imputed to him a righteous account with God, Genesis 15. Uh, the whole story with uh, Isaac and bringing him up on the hill is what, Genesis 21 or 2? 22. 22. So it's seven chapters later where God shows him to be righteous by his actions. But he, where the focus of Judaism and others is on Abraham's actions after he was saved, they just don't, they don't account Genesis 15. But his circumcision as a sign and his obedience with Isaac and all of those things, they're looking at the signs, just like in Christendom, People look at the signs of the Lord's Supper and baptism, and they try to account merit to them. You know, I get baptized, so it counts meritoriously. No, it's a symbol of an inward reality. Uh, the Lord's Supper, Christ is really present in the Lord's Supper, and there's grace in the cup. And in the, No, there's not. It's just a symbol of, and that's the problem. You, you take the rites or symbols, and you become to make those uh, implements of swimming, and now you think they're, they're flotation devices. 
to, to get you across. So. All right, good stuff. Well, you know, Pastor, real quick, the, uh, yeah, the one thing I have found out, the mysteries of salvation has been corrupted by Satan himself. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. where it starts from. That's right, he's a liar. You know, yes, and uh, it's, it's corrupted in that's right. every way that's right. you can that's right. possibly see. And all religions have at the base a subtle, or else you don't think so, unless you just join um, the Satanism club. Uh, but the subtle belief that is the same lie in the garden, which is you can be your own God. That, that somehow you're the moral arbitrator of your life and you can save yourself and right. you know good and evil and all of those things. All right. All right, middle of page two. Let's give some theological definition. For those who came well-equipped on this matter, you may think I'm being slow. I am for a purpose, and uh, we'll quicken the pace next week. Justification is instantaneous legal act of God in which he does the following two things. He thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And he declares us to be righteous in his sight, says Wayne Grudem. And then Emory Bancroft, defining justification, says, That judicial act of God, by which, on account of Christ, to whom the sinner is united by faith, he declares that sinner to be no longer exposed to the penalty of the law, but to be restored to his favor. That's beautiful. Notice the careful wording of the theological statement. He declares that sinner to be not, he doesn't say not guilty. Right. You're guilty. I'm guilty. Right. And you don't get off on technicality. He declares that sinner to be no longer exposed to the penalty of the law because someone paid the penalty. How do guilty sinners go home free? By the penalty Jesus absorbed. All right, so let's talk about the cause and effect of justification. Salvation is the result of justification, which is the result of imputation, and imputation is the result of faith, which is the result of grace. Huh? Let's read them backwards. If you read it backwards, it is grace is God's empowerment to come out of your deadness so that you may believe. Faith, then, is a fruit of the grace of God. So grace has produced fruit, which then, by the faith that you have, God then imputes the righteousness of Christ to your account. And in that imputing of that righteousness, he then declares you, you're justified. That you are righteous before him is the declaration after the imputation, in which now the broad word salvation is true of us. If God in his grace has given us faith to believe and we have trusted in Christ, he imputes the righteousness of Christ to our account, declares it to be so in justification. And now we can say we are saved. What are we saved from? Three things, right? The penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin and the pleasure of sin. And ultimately in glorification, we will be saved from the presence of sin. Okay? We've been saved from the penalty. We are being saved and we will be saved. And all of those are fruits thereof of them. So again, in the small words to the right of those two boxes, God's grace is both his gracious stance towards us. Namely, he gives us what we don't deserve. And it's also his divine enablement in the form of the desire and power to do his will. Grace saves us from our total inability to save ourselves. Salvation is of the Lord in the full sense. It's like saying swimming is of the Lord. Back to the beach. If anybody ends up in England, because we all end up in England if you're a believer. Like, how did that even happen? 
if you're looking back at it, you can only say salvation is of the Lord. Or in the Old Testament in Jeremiah, where we'll look a little more carefully next week, where it says of the coming Messiah, and he will be called by the name, the Lord our righteousness. The Yahweh Tishkenu in Hebrew. What does that mean? He's our righteousness. He was the swimmer. Look, he did it. That's how to be saved. That's right. That's right. He's the swimmer. Look what he did. And then that's counted as if I swam to England. And then I wake up after I die in England. I got through the mixing metaphors. I got through the door in Narnia, through the wardrobe. I just wake up and I'm in England. Yeah. <laughs> What's that, Spencer? <laughs> I, that's right. Spare um. That's right. Mr. Tumnus. Right? So much easier than works. So much easier than works. I counted on him, and I believe, and I end up in England, or better than England. There it is. All right, the, the two boxes at the bottom of the page, simplistic, but hear me out, debt and credit. I understand if you're an accountant in the room that these are not the way that you would do your accounting books the way they're done. I recognize that. Uh, but this is my simplistic view. I don't... Um, just in the simplest way, there's two aspects of the atoning work of Christ that when he died on the cross, there's a reason why there's a cup and there's a bread in communion. There's a reason why there's two symbols there. Now, there are many reasons why from the Old Testament picture. But those two symbols picture the two aspects of what it means to be saved by the atoning work of Christ. You see, because we owe a debt to God, which I've put there as a kabillion zillion million against his holiness, against his laws, against everything we've done. We owe God a punishment that we cannot pay. But back to the credit side. We're zero, bro. It's that we have no righteousness on God's account. We have no righteousness before God. All of our works are filthy rags. Christ's work to atone for us accomplishes both of these problems for us. It pays God's the debt to God. But then his righteousness being credited fills up the debt, the, the, the side where we have no credit. If you only had Christ died on the cross and bled for you and paid your punishment and there was no imputation of his righteousness, you cannot stand before God. You cannot be in God's presence in his heaven. That's like saying, hey, we're going to make up for all those crimes the swimmer did, but you still can't swim. Right? So both of those necessary in the death of Christ. Uh, let me do it this way, too. And this is a whole conversation later, because we will get back into this whole thing. The misconception that the atoning work of Christ was all accomplished at the cross and not through his life also. It is the obedience of the Son as the second Adam. This is Romans 5 that Paul will get into. That Christ represented all of us and obeyed the law perfectly and obeyed the Father perfectly, which Adam did not do in the first case. It's his obedience as the Son walking earth, which that credited righteousness is credited to our account. 
It is not the infinite intrinsic righteousness of the second person of the Trinity dumped into our account. That could have been accomplished without death. I could just nailed it in from heaven. I'm transferring righteousness. But it is the imputed righteousness as if we had perfectly obeyed. And then the debt we owed had to be paid by death in God's account. And you see, you see this. So when we take the symbols on a, on a Sunday and we say, wow, the cup, the bread, this is my life, and the bread, this is my death, and the cup. That's why Jesus, of course, was alluding to this in a more nascent sense in which he said, eat my flesh, drink my blood. It's more of a picture that he was trying to get to early in the Gospels in John 6 that you must, you must imbibe all of what I've done for you. Does that make sense? I am the bread of life. All right. That's right. Good. A lot's happening in this passage. Mm-hmm. All right. Page three. Yeah, brother. How come at communion, even the they say we do the bread first and then the blood second? He's asking why do we do the bread first? Because it's hard to choke down the bread <laughs> unless you have juice, man. So even Jesus knew that, right? So. <laughs> if you asked it chronologically, I don't know. You know, the scriptures doesn't say why they put it in that order. But if you look at it, his life, then his death come chronologically. Uh, and what he offered for us, his righteousness and then his death. And so... Uh, you know, why, why each one before the other one? You could say, well, his death and then his life imparted uh, either one. You have to have both. Right. That's a good question. All right, page three. Okay, so what do we do in the rest of this time? I've got to link you in. Some of you are going to be like, dude, I already know this. I'm good. Then just pray for the rest of us sinners. <laughs> I'm going to take time to define these words from Romans three twenty-one to 31. Not assuming everyone is totally there, so that our conversations the next four weeks are clear. Okay? That's what I'm doing. And then we go back into what I've done the first seven weeks, exposit the text next week. Okay. Page three. Atonement. When I keep using that word, what do we mean? The work Christ did in his life and his death to earn our salvation. Secondly, what is propitiation used in Romans 3? A sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end. And in so doing, changes God's wrath towards us into favor. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. This is the idea, how can I be right with God in a way that he is appeased? Propitiation means God's wrath has been appeased. Reconciliation, the removal of enmity and the restoration of fellowship between two parties. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Redemption is used in this passage. Christ's saving work, viewed as an act of buying back sinners out of their bondage to sin and to Satan through the payment of a ransom. Now, there's a false theory of what Christ accomplished on the cross, that he had to pay Satan a ransom. Satan's not in charge. The offense wasn't against Satan. 
our offenses against the holy God. God had to be appeased. God had to be propitiated. God had to be. So, but it's a picture of the ransom that God is paying himself, which is kind of an interesting one. But God has Christ pay a, a, a payment that is accepted as if it was a ransom to get sinners out of slavery. That's how he bought us. He purchased us with a price. And what is faith then? So used in this passage. To trust. It's our trust or dependence on God based on the fact that we take him at his word and believe what he has said. That's both positively inferred and negatively. Positively it is this. Look, he's the only swimmer out there. God's only going to let that count. That's positively looking at Christ. Christ did all of this. And negatively, if you will, it's turning away from the things that we thought were going to help us be swimmers. My religion, my hope, the boat I was building, you know, it's going to be Gilligan's Island, dude. You know, it's just not going to end well. It's going to be PT 109. Does anybody know what I mean by that? Wow, that's because you're in the D.C. area. Hey, let me just say this. You guys are smarter than the people in California. <laughs> oh, wait, oh, is that Mike on? That's okay. The people in California would expect me to say something like that. Here's some of the passages. We could read many on saving faith, but through whom we have received grace and apostleship, Paul says, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. For in it, in it, the gospel, verse 17, of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And then that next passage, let me read quickly. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. It's my favorite verse in the book of Romans. I'm going to read it again. You know how when you read some verses and you just go, thank you, Jesus, for yourself. Right. And you recognize other verses touch other people's lives. Right. This is one that always just refreshes me every time. When you get through all the religion and the talk and you read through the Bible and you do theology and everything, it comes down to this verse, verse 5, chapter 4, verse 5. But to the one who does not work, who stays on the beach, who eats ding-dongs and barbecue pork ribs all day, <laughs> isn't even going out there, is laughing at the other swimmers. No, I'm going too far. <laughs> to the person who recognizes they cannot get out there and swim. But believes in him who swam it for you. Your faith in that finished work of that other swimmer will be credited as righteousness. As if you swam the ocean. It's my favorite verse in the book of Romans. All right, page four. What then is justification? It's an instantaneous legal act of God in which he first of all thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And number two, he declares us to be righteous in his sight. This is the idea of adoption. That's my son, that's my daughter. He declares you, they are right with me. Enmity is done. Friends, you're not an enemy of God any longer. God is not your enemy. God is not mad with you. God is not angry today with you. God was angry with his son 
so that we would not face the wrath of God. God is not angry with you. If you're in Christ, you are freed from the penalty of the sin that you have done. And will still do. Every time we get out in the water and say, I think I can do this. We get pretty far out. And we're supposed to swim now. But not in that ocean. All right, what is justification then? A few verses. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions was raised because of our justification. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Back to imputation. And that is in chapter 5 is largely in chapter 4. To think of as belonging to someone and therefore to cause it to belong to that person. God thinks of Adam's sin as belonging to us and it therefore belongs to us. And in justification, he thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and he relates to us on the basis. Guys, hear this up until that point that's in bold and underlined. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, that is, you think you're going to go swimming, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. That's the problem with religion, right? You swim out 100 yards and say, God, you owe me 100 yards of righteousness because I worked for it. God's like, uh, there's no credit out here. <laughs> now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work but believes in him and justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. All right, in the time that we have left, at the bottom of the page, I want to talk about infused righteousness and talk again about the treasury of merit I talked about a few weeks ago. And that righteousness that God actually puts into us is the view that changes us internally. The Roman Catholic Church understands justification to involve such an infusion, which differs from Protestantism's view that justification is a legal declaration of God. Drawing number 600. And then we'll, whatever time we have left here, make a big point. Okay. How are we declared righteous? How do we become justified before God? Um, the Roman Catholic view, as an example of a work salvation, is the hyperbermic needle of infused righteousness. I'll get out of the way here, John. John's gone. Oh, there's a rapture! <laughs> Apparently the rest of us are left behind. <laughs> okay, the difference between our understanding of biblical imputation counted as and Roman Catholics, when they say justified and imputation, they use the word infused righteousness, which is God gives you enough righteousness of actual ability to do good works. Not credited. So the picture in a Roman Catholic thing is Jesus is on the beach with the swimmers. And he says, you're all going to have to swim to England to get to heaven. It's like, really? Yeah, but I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you enough merit juice on the beach for you to be like serious swimmers so you can swim out. Yeah, but what if the merit juice wears off? That's okay. 
I've got seven spigots out there in the ocean that every time you get to one, you can fill up. Okay, but what if I do something bad on the way out there? Well, you lose the merit you got. Okay, so all that's going on. You're given enough righteousness in Roman Catholicism to do the commandments yourself, to swim, to earn your salvation. Roman Catholicism, it's not, I'm giving you this and you're going to be okay. It's, you're going to have to swim. Versus God has credited the swimmer in Christ. All right, let's finish by just looking at that quickly again. <clears throat> Pardon me, on page five. And I gave you my whiteboard session from last time. Looks like check valves. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, eight days from now, we'll be, we will be celebrating the 505th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Protestant Reformation. What were they protesting the, in, the indulgent system in a work salvation and what were they reforming they were trying to get away from the system of salvation to faith alone grace alone and Christ alone as it's in the scriptures alone for the glory of God alone the five souls and so that's what was happening and so I want to remind you why there was a Protestant Reformation why this matters because in Howard County and in Baltimore there's a lot of Catholics Right, because we're in Mary land. I'm, I'm not kidding, right? You guys know that, right? That's why it's called Mary land. You know that, right? What? Why are people laughing about that? That's real. Yeah, that's why it's called Mary land, because it was the only colony, actually territory, that was allowing Catholics in. Now, I just want to say this historically, before you get the whole point. Okay, just, just, just thinking. You understand that the Protestant Reformation, that Catholics started killing Protestants like crazy in Europe. And so when those dudes came over here, right, to both Jamestown and everything, they're escaping the persecution not only in England, but on the continent. And it's crazy village over there. So they would not have been open to like, yeah, bring all the Catholics over here. We just had this huge war religiously, and they, the Catholic Church dominates Europe, both in terms of government and religion. And so all of that's going on. So sorry to say that. Okay. So this was called Maryland because Catholics were allowed. Okay. To that point, the big picture. This picture is how Catholics are saved. Let me go through the nine rules of the game. Have you ever played the game of life, that board game? Okay. This is the game of life, eternal life according to Catholicism. Number one, you're going to read the little cards. What is the game about? Merit is necessary for salvation. So you get a merit cup. Number two, merit, that is salvation points, can only be obtained through the Roman Catholic <coughs> sacrificial or sacramental system, the treasury of merit. Okay, let me stop. The game is set up this way. You get a merit cup. You're going to, I'm mixing metaphors, swimming, running, it doesn't matter. But you get a merit cup, and then there's these seven places you can stop and get merit. But you're not allowed into the game unless you're a Roman Catholic. So everybody outside of Roman Catholicism at the time of the Reformation was considered to be bad. <laughs> no hope of eternal life. Thirdly, no one knows how many points you need. So you can never know if you've done enough. You get to the third merit scoop or whatever, and you're like, how am I doing? You ask a priest. I don't know. Nobody's got a bingo card. 
<laughs> right? Hope so. Nobody knows. So you never know in the game where you're swimming or where you're at. Number four, certain types of sin negate or remove merit. Right? Certain sins, bad sins, negate merit. So again, you get your cup and you got a little bit in your cup and you're like, mm-hmm, and then it's also all poured out at one of the stops. Like, okay, go back. Now you have to go back to start. Number five, your level of accrued merit points determines your afterlife destination. Heaven, hell, or purgatory. Now, there's certain sins, of course, in Roman Catholicism, which send you to hell and get you off the board. Mortal sins, but we won't get into those. Number six, purgatory, the purging, is for the Roman Catholic who hasn't done enough to get to heaven, but has enough points to avoid hell. They swam out pretty far, you know, even 100 yards from the beach, and they floated around. They didn't come back on the beach. Now you're going to have to go into purgatory, where for the next kabillion years, you're going to have to go to swim class while you're also in pain. Merit points were added to the person based on the number of years they spend in purgatory. A get-out-of-purgatory card could be obtained through an indulgence. Stop. Right? This is why there's a Protestant Reformation. What is an indulgence? Right. An indulgence is a payment for something which credits you righteousness. Ooh, why didn't they just take it from Jesus? It's been a lot easier. But it's an indulgence which says this person is credited this many years in purgatory to get out of it because of the merit given by either Jesus, Mary, or the saints. And we talked about that last time. The saints, Mary, and Jesus put um, merit into the merit, treasury of merit, by virtue of the things they have done. And then number seven, again, a get-out-of-purgatory card could be obtained through the indulgence. So in 1517, Martin Luther, the whole thing, this is what's happening. This is the salvation being taught. Luther comes to faith in Christ, and he's like, now they're going to start selling major indulgences. Number eight, an indulgence supposedly purchased a pardon or remission of sin by the pope based on merit drawn from the treasury of merit. Guys, I'm not making this up. The treasury of merit was filled by the righteousness, again, of Christ, Mary, and the saints, dead Catholics who had more merit points than they needed to earn their own salvation. So in Roman Catholicism, a saint is somebody who swam the whole thing. And when they got to England, they're like, I got like a half a cup full of stuff. What am I going to do? Send it back to those poor people on the beach so that they can swim here too. It's extra merit. And indulgences, number nine, were sold, yes, for money at first, for years off of purgatory. Then eventually for the complete remission of all sins for all time. Good. Amber, Amber's question is a really good question, Amber. Is the Roman Catholic Church's understanding of this system from the Bible or also inclusive of the extra-biblical literature of the Apocrypha? The answer is yes, the second one. That's right. Uh, the reason that the Roman Catholic Church, after the Reformation in 1546, had the Council of Trent, where they added the Apocrypha formally, which had been used in the back of the Bible up till then, from Jerome's time, but the Apocrypha was added as deuterocanonical, also canonical, at that point, because it, it had doctrines in it that fought against the Protestant Reformation. Baptism for the dead, work salvation, etc., are taught in certain parts of the Apocrypha, and therefore they were added formally to the canon. But the first 1,500 years of the church, 
those were considered history books, but not authoritative. But in 1546, they were added to the Roman Catholic's canon. Good question. All right, uh, so back to number nine. It was this last supper sale that led to Martin Luther's 95 Thesis Against Indulgences. If you look at my picture in closing up at the top, those seven little faucets, before you see the superindulginator, the seven faucets are the seven sacraments, obviously. And that's the big picture. You have a merit cup, you have to get it filled up. You can lose it, you have to get to heaven by having a full cup. That is, the full cup equals swimming the entire thing. Okay. The superindulginator is what caused the Protestant Reformation as such. <coughs> Luther was like, now they're selling one indulgence that covers all of your sins of all time. You don't even need to use the system. The system was corrupt. He knew that. But now they're saying, you just purchase your salvation one time and you can go to heaven. And you can act any old way you want, too. And Luther's like, look, salvation is not purchasable. It's only through Christ. He had just become a believer himself by teaching the book of Romans as a professor. Imagine teaching this book and believing in Catholicism. And that's what happened to Luther. He became a Christian by chapter 3. And in chapter 3, because of what it said in chapter 1, but when he got to chapter 3 and he realized that the righteousness of God by faith in chapter 1 was credited to him, he trusted in Christ as his Savior. And it was after that that the Protestant Reformation began. All right, let's pray.